maybe I'm stuck in the topical studies a little bit. I did one last Saturday and then yesterday, and I, I think we're going to end up more in a topical studies this afternoon than verse by verse, because we come to this these two verses. We're just going to look at two verses um, today, verses 45 and 46 of John 11. And, and when I started to study, it just struck me. Maybe it's one of my uh, pet peeves. Maybe it's one of my favorite doctrines or Maybe it's the doctrine, I think, that is so necessary to see what is saving faith and what is not saving faith. I think it's very important in the day that we live in and that there is a faith in Christ that is not unto salvation. And that is um, concerning and we ought to be able to discern it. So let's start. We'll read verses 45 and 46, just two verses today. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Let us pray. Father, O holy God in heaven, give us understanding in your word. Your word is truth. Your word brings life. It saves the lost. It sanctifies your people. Oh, Lord, please work today that the Spirit of God come down into the preaching of your word. We be turned, conformed into Christ's image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We find ourselves back in John 11 where we have the account of Jesus Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. This miracle displayed the power of the Lord Jesus more than any other miracle up to this point. This miracle was unique or special because Lazarus was dead four days, as you probably know by now, and, and there was a large crowd gathered as witnesses, and the testimony of this miracle quickly spread far and wide. We have more, many details about what happened leading up to this miracle, and then the Lord's relationship with Lazarus's family. We have much information about the miracle itself. And now, at the end, there are 13 verses explaining the aftermath of this spectacular event. We're not going to look at all 13 today. I believe these first two verses are, we could call them the prelude to this last section of the chapter, which are the 13 verses explaining to us now what happened after the miracle. And that'll also that same theme will pour over into chapter 12 as we get into that in a few weeks. But try to place yourself at the scene. Try to do it in your mind's eye. When they removed the stone from the tomb and, and the Lord shouted Lazarus's name and commanded him to come out of his place of death where he had laid four days. Think about that scene. There must have been screams of terror and joy. Most must have had their jaws on the ground as their mouths hung open in utter shock when they saw Lazarus obey the Lord's command and walk out of the grave, wrapped in his grave clothes. This work of Christ was undeniably miraculous, and it was done as proof that everything that he said was true. It's like the Lord said, Will you believe me if I raise this man from the dead? And just to make sure that you will believe, I am going to leave him dead four days. 
and make sure that there are plenty of eyewitnesses as there were. But still, some did not believe. And even amongst those who did believe, I'm wrestling with it still to, to still now. And, and I was yesterday. I'm, I'm looking through the commentaries, trying to find a certain point that had arisen in my mind that we'll learn in just a few minutes as we work through the sermon. And I really couldn't find anybody to agree with me. That's what you do as a preacher when you think of something. You're you're thinking, boy, am I wrong on this? Is there anybody else that's thinking the same thing I'm thinking? We'll come back to that, <laughs> but because I think there's really three groups here. I don't think there's just two. Because of the context of John's gospel, I believe there's three groups. There's the unbelieving who went to the Pharisees in 46, and in 45, the believers, and you see this consistently almost throughout the entirety of John's gospel, the believers are split into, split into two groups, those who savingly believe, and those who do not savingly believe. They both believe there's a difference in their faith. But, but before we get into that, and I think we should make no mistake about it, the Lord Jesus was in complete control, and everything was right on schedule. How much worse was the situation that the Lord faced in John 11 than the situation that we face today? They were on a constant hunt to try to capture Christ so that they could murder him. This was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. If he died, all would seemingly, seemingly be lost. It is easy with hindsight, to, or it's easy to look back and see how everything worked for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. But if we were alive then, we would have been like Peter, telling the Lord, no, don't die, don't go to the cross. My point is that Christ turned the situation around on a dime. Or one day was the darkest day in human history, and three days later, it was the brightest day in human history. And it all worked out exactly how Christ had planned. I want, you to, I want to delve in today into the topic, again, that we did about six months ago, and probably about a year before that, called The Sovereignty of God and Man's Responsibility. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And in context of Christ dying, when I just mentioned the gospel, we see something of this. That God is sovereign. We've learned in this chapter that Christ saves who? Everybody? No, he saves his sheep. Those who God has chosen. And he saves them by his resurrection power. Well, there should be a question. Listen to me. There should be a question that arises in your mind. When you hear that, it's the question in Romans 9, 19. Well, does that excuse us then? Does that mean that the people that are unsaved can now blame God? Say, well, I'm not saved because God didn't save me. That's why I'm not saved. Is that how it works? No. I want you to see today that God is sovereign in saving his people. And yes, salvation is a miracle, as we'll see again today. At the same time. Men are responsible to believe, and when they don't, they'll be held accountable before God. You see it there in Acts 2, 22 through 24. This point made probably 
in the most clearest way in Scripture in these verses. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which did, which, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So there you see the sovereignty of God. Christ died by the predetermined counsel of God. In other words, God decreed it before the world began. There was no way that Christ could not die the way he did, because it was ordained of God. Yet, wicked men were responsible for his death. I think that we can assume that some of those who were there on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached this great sermon, uh, this is an excerpt from it that we just read, where they're also, where they're also when the Lord Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and many of them listening to Peter's sermon surely heard of this miracle. In other words, my point is either they were there or they at least heard of it. Christ was delivered by the preordained plan of God to be crucified, while those who crucified him were fully culpable for the most heinous crime of killing the Messiah. And the grave could not hold Christ because he is the resurrection and life. Before his own resurrection, this was proven by him raising up Lazarus. I want to help you understand that when Christ is determined to save his people, there is nothing that can stop them from being saved. The Lord Jesus was determined to raise Lazarus from the dead, to give saving faith to those whom he chose to give it to that day. The text says that many believed upon him in 1145 of John. But I also want to bring to your attention that there were three groups of people following Jesus throughout his three-year ministry. Now, we talked about it probably about a year ago in a sermon I called those people, the three groups, the converted, the curious, and the contentious. And the converted and the curious are both amongst those who believe. Yet they're split into two groups. The contentious are those who are fighting against Christ and are blatantly unbelieving. But we must understand that there is a faith in Jesus that is not unto salvation. The apostle warned the Corinthians, look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read it earlier in the service, to open the service, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Look at this last phrase. You see it there? Unless ye have believed in vain. Unless you have believed in vain. James warns us that the devils believe and tremble, and they are not saved, making the point that saving faith is more than just mental assent or a, a simple 
nod of the head to Jesus, or it is even more than a thorough understanding of the gospel. A thorough understanding of the gospel should be included, but our faith must go beyond that. Jesus Christ must be revealed to us as Lord and God. This shows us that at the heart of salvation is Christ revealing himself to those that are his. While at the same time, I want you to see the madness of unbelief, the total insanity of it. Think about it. There were people that, who saw Christ raise Lazarus from the dead, who was dead for four days, and they did not believe. It's insanity. The most irrational thing that someone could do is to reject Christ. Today, we'll look at the sovereignty of God in saving sinners and the responsibility of man, of men who remain in their sin. And our two headings for the main part of the sermon, you see them on the back of your bulletin. One, the miracle of saving faith. And number two, the madness of unbelief. The miracle of saving faith and the madness of unbelief. Number one, the miracle of saving faith in verse 45. In these two verses, in 45 and 46, we find the two reactions of those who were eyewitnesses to Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. But first, in verse 45, if you go to, back to John 11, you can see it there in the text that we read just a few moments ago. John 11, in verse number 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, I, I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this at my desk. Who are these believers? Are they true converts? Every commentator I read said, yes, they are true converts. I struggle with that to this point. Even now I struggle with it. I, I, I think they were mixed. As I mentioned, there were different types of believers following the Lord Jesus during his ministry, the true and the false. The first Passover that the Lord went to was in John 2, was attended by many who believed on him. Look there in John 2. I want you to see this. It's particularly important to see this in John 2. It's how his gospel starts. Right in the beginning, John wants to lay this out. Now, there's many that believed in Jesus, right? In America, the same way, many believe in Jesus. But look with me at their superficial faith. It's clearly marked out for us in 23 through 25 of John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, there it is, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. But Christ would not commit himself unto them because he knew that there was part of them that were not truly believing, even though they professed to believe. In John 6, the Lord rebuked those who were believing upon him and following him for the free food and miracles. Look there in John 6. 
You see the same thing. Very similar, at least. In John 6, what is it, in 26 and 27, they, they cross the sea. They cross the Sea of Galilee. They're looking everywhere for Jesus. So diligent they are to find him. And then when they find him, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, in verse 26, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, for, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Do you see that? The Lord is, is correcting them. In, in John 6, the Lord rebuked those who were believing upon him and following him for the free food. Just as the Lord was not impressed with Nicodemus's faith. Oh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus all proud and says, Oh, we know that you are from God, for no man can do the things that you do, Lord. Jesus doesn't even greet him, doesn't even recognize what he said, and goes right to him. And tells him, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Leave that flattery at home. You must be born again. There are several ways and motives to believe in Christ that don't save. I mentioned in the introduction what James said. Look, look there in James chapter 2 and verse number 19 through 20. James 2, 19 and 20. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? A faith in Christ that produces no good works is a dead faith, or a faith produced by the flesh. Yes, the flesh can believe in Jesus. It is a very touching story of how a great man gave up his life for others who were poor. Or everyone likes a story about an underdog who rises above those who are more powerful than him, as Christ obviously did. There are angles to the gospel that are attractive to the carnal man. And the historicity or historical truth of Christ's life is beyond doubt. The unconverted man can believe that there was a man who walked on this earth who claimed to be God. And this man did many miraculous things and that he died for our sins. It all kind of makes sense. Everyone has a guilty conscience that tells us that we need forgiven. And, and Jesus died to pay for those sins. And now if we agree with those facts and pray to God that he'll forgive us, then we're saved. Right? But it can all be an act of the flesh. And true salvation must come by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of John 11. The whole point of, John, of Christ raising Lazarus is a case in point to show us that this is what salvation is. It is what salvation is by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that leaves us in amazement saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? Not because we're trying to save ourselves by what we do, but because our eyes have been opened to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we want nothing else but to serve him. This faith without works is a dead faith. It's a fleshly faith. 
we read earlier that the apostle warned the Corinthians that their faith in Jesus or in the gospel could be in vain. And the Corinthian church, if you read those letters, had many problems. But whereas the faith that James talked about in James 2 was a fleshly or dead faith, a portion of these Corinthians, I believe, were guilty of having a fleshly or dead repentance. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't believe that just because I thought of it in my mind. I believe that because here it's written in the scripture to the Corinthians, this text in 7.10 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance, the salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There is a sorrow over sin, or there is a repentance that is not unto salvation. I mentioned it yesterday at the Bible study that everyone at one time or another feels the guilt of our sin and we turn away from that sin. I know unbelievers that have not had a drink of alcohol that, for 20 years. And they were formerly alcoholics. They repented of their drunkenness. Does that mean they're saved? No. It doesn't. Men repent all the time. You get in trouble with your wife. You end up in prison. You end up on a sickbed. You stop doing what you used to do. You get older and your body just can't do it anymore. So you stop doing certain things. It's, it's a form of repentance. It's a turning away from sin. Does that mean that they are saved? No. Godly sorrow is a sorrow over our sin because we have sinned, listen, against God. We have sinned against God. Matthew Henry made this comment in reference to 2 Corinthians 7.10 that we just read. He said, Godly sorrow is according to the will of God, tending to the glory of God, and wrought by the Spirit of God. Look in Acts chapter 11. There in verse number 18, the apostles were rejoicing that these Gentiles had been brought into the church. And certainly that is a thing to rejoice over for 2,000 years later, we are those same Gentiles being brought into the church. But look there how they describe repentance at the end of the text. Acts 11:18. when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted or given repentance unto life. We know that we have been given godly repentance when we know and feel that our sin is great and that it is an offense against God, and that this gift has come to us from him, and that he has every right to condemn us for our sin. Repentance, saving repentance, is that we are sorry before God. Godly sorrow that leads to true saving repentance is not measured by the amount of sorrow that we feel. This is the deadly error could be one of the deadliest errors, I think, in believing the truth or, or trying to believe the truth. People say, well, of course I've repented. I wept over my sin. I wept for two weeks over my sin. I know that I repented. Well, 
Hebrews 12, 17 tells us, For Esau found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Though he sought it carefully with tears. Yes, tears are appropriate for godly repentance, but they're not necessarily the evidence of godly repentance. Godly repentance is measured by the fact, again, that we have sinned against God, and we have seen God's holiness, and have been brought to realize our destitution of any goodness. But then when we turned, we saw the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ dying for us. When Romans 2, 4, it was the goodness of God that led us to repentance. That Christ died for us when we were his enemies in Romans 5, 10. This is Holy Spirit wrought salvation and repentance. True repentance is when we look at the cross of Christ and beat our chest and say, what have I done? My sin has killed the Son of God. I partook in that heinous crime of killing Christ. Oh God, forgive me. True repentance is the fact that we have sinned against God. Who would ever even think about that? I think about my pre-converted state or as a child. <laughs> as a child, would I ever even think to conceive that my sin was against God? It would never even cross my mind. Why would I ever even think that? And yet, by God's grace, when the Spirit comes, He convicts us and shows us that because God is holy, and because God is loving, we have sinned against him. And we are in need of his forgiveness. This is true repentance. First, the portion that believe have a dead faith or a faith that works, uh, the faith without works in James. Two, and second, uh, if, if, we, if, if, a dead faith, if we have a dead faith, then we will have a dead repentance. Or repentance based upon human sorrow. And third, in Galatians, the apostle feared that he had preached the gospel to them in vain. Or we read, read it earlier in Galatians 3, that a portion of the Galatians had imagined that they were saved by grace, but now they were continuing on in the power of the flesh. And in context of the whole epistle, they were not denying Christ. They weren't denying Christ. But they were adding to him. And thus, in reality, they were denying Christ. This is the other great error of those who believe in Christ. They would say in Galatians, we are Christians, we believe in Jesus. But, but you have to be circumcised in addition to believing in order to be saved. But the, Ju the Judaizers had snuck in and taught them this false doctrine a very deadly doctrine and damning doctrine. Dead faith with dead repentance produces a man-centered view of the gospel or a gospel that adds the merits of man to Christ, which is no gospel at all. It's another gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. However, there are other explicit examples. Follow me. There's explicit examples, and shift gears, in the other direction, there's explicit ex examples in John's gospel of those who believed, and they were true believers. They were true believers. Do a study on your own, please. I'll give you the verses 
And you can find this distinction throughout John's gospel. It's so important for us to see it. That there's believers of two types. The Samaritan woman at the well. She was a true believer. She believed upon the Lord Jesus and immediately showed the fruit of true saving faith by going into town and telling others about Christ. Also, the man that was lame who laid at the pool of Bethesda and was healed. When he believed upon Christ, he went back and told others. And the man who was born blind that was healed in John 9 that we just looked at a few months ago showed proof of his faith in Christ by worshiping the Lord Jesus. But upon a closer examination, the crowd at the end of John 2, Nicodemus and, and the men in John 6, these did not have true saving faith, and they were all seeking Christ. They were seeking Jesus, but they were seeking him for the wrong reason. Those in John 2 just wanted the miracles. Nicodemus was curious in John 3, and it sure seems that he was not yet a true believer. I believe he did become a true believer. The sure seems in John 3, he's not. And in John 6, it is pretty easy to see that they were following Jesus for the free food and the show. And that is why Christ rebuked them, as we read earlier in 6, 26 and 27. But the woman at the well, you'll also see John emphasizes this in each one of these stories of true conversion. The woman at the well, the man healed at the pool of Bethesda, and the blind man who was healed did not seek Christ. But he sought them. The others, you'll find them seeking Christ. You'll find Nicodemus seeking Christ. You'll find those in chapter 2 seeking Christ. Those in chapter 6, they cross the sea to find Christ. They're seeking him. And they're found false. The others, the woman at the well, she resisted Christ. Even, even at first, when he wanted to talk to her, he didn't even want to, she didn't want to talk to him. Read the story. And then she wanted to argue with him. He was there to get water, and that was it. And she was being bothered by this Jew. But Christ sought her. Earlier, you'll notice, Christ said, it was in chapter 3 or the beginning of 4, where Christ said, I must needs go through Samaria. It was not the normal route that they would travel from, from Jerusalem to Galilee or to Capernaum, where he was going at that time. The normal route would have been the most likely the, the, the Jordan Basin. But Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. The Jews would avoid the Samaritans. They were the dogs. They were, they were worse than the dogs. They were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentiles. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as almost like devils. And they would avoid Samaria at all costs. But Christ said, I must needs go through Samaria. That woman was not seeking him, but Christ was seeking her, and John makes that very clear. And in verse 26, you can see it there in verse 26 of, of John chapter 4. Look, look how it happens. Christ just, just turns her on a dime. She, she's, she's resistant, although you do see her coming along. She starts to listen, and then she's curious, and then all of a sudden, though, in verse 26, you see it there. She gets born again when Jesus said unto her, I, 
that speak unto thee am he. She says in verse 25, the Messiah is coming. And we're looking for him. And Jesus said, he that speaketh to you is he. Or I that speaketh unto you am he. And then you see here, you'll see if you read the rest of the chapter, she goes back to the town, she tells everybody, and then they come and half the town or more gets converted. And with both the men, with both the men that got healed in the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5 and the man born blind in chapter 9, they got separated from Christ. They both get healed, right? They both get separated from Christ. And then the text tells us specifically in both chapters what happened. Christ went and found them. They weren't seeking him. Here they were healed of Christ. They still weren't seeking him. Christ went and found him. And John wants us to know that. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that. John makes a point that the ones who have true saving faith were the ones who Christ was determined to save. And he specifically revealed himself to them. Even in his post-resurrection appearances, Christ doesn't just appear to everybody. He only appears to people that are chosen. In John 2, when the Lord turned the water into wine, look there. I'm just compelled to to look at that one because there's another one. It's just in every story, John is making this point. In John 2, when the Lord turned the water into wine, many witnessed the miracle. But in verse 11, look what it says. This is the beginning of miracles that Jesus and Cain of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and everybody believed. Is that what the text says? No, it says, and his disciples believed upon him. It's the very reason he did the miracle. And you can see Christ saying that on a few occasions in the Gospels too. Would you remember in John 9, who, who, who sinned, this man or his, or his parents, that he was born blind? What was Jesus' answer? Neither, but that the glory of God would be manifested. That's why he was born blind. Lazarus, why was he, why did he die? Christ says in verse 4 of John 11, that Christ would be manifested, that he would be glorified, and that you would believe, that Christ would be glorified, and you would believe. What grace. It's the very, it's the very theme of John's gospel that we memorized right at the beginning. You remember in John 20, there in verse number 31, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have eternal life through his name. The disciples believed in John 2. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago in John 1. Remember on Saturday we did the testimony. What happened? Nathaniel came, or maybe we can say he was dragged to Jesus by Philip. You remember? And he came saying, what good can come out of Nazareth? And then, and then Jesus says to him that he was a, an upright man. And, and, and Nathaniel reacts by saying, who are you? To, you don't know me. Why are you talking to me like that? Basically, he says to him. And yet, the Lord saved him. The Lord turned him. Philip went and found him and brought him to Christ. And Nathaniel really was doubting, even refusing to believe when Christ turned him. The story of Doubting Thomas puts the final exclamation mark on this principle at the end of John's Gospel. And I assume we'll come back to this principle when we get there. But for today, he said, what did Thomas say? 
he said that he would not believe until he saw Christ with his own eyes and he wanted to put his hands in his pierced hands and side. Now, the Lord could have said, well, what the Lord could have said, he could have said, fine. He doesn't want to believe on me, then I taught him for three years and he's seen all the miracles. I'm just going to leave him in his sin. Could have said that. <laughs> but that was not what happened. Christ came to Thomas. Thomas didn't go to Christ. Christ appeared and came to Thomas and the other disciples and showed him his pierced hands and sighed, and Thomas believed. And we see the same principle again. The Lord Jesus came to Thomas and revealed himself as God, and then Thomas believed. He said, my Lord and my God. This is the pattern in John's gospel. And I can't see, I can't wrench myself away to leave this pattern in John 11, 45 and 46. That's why you said I, that's why I was in a wrestling match. Because I'm thinking, who are these people that are believing in 1145? Are they all true believers? Are some of them? I believe predominantly they were true believers, and possibly they all were. And I kind of lean in that direction because of what Christ said. And, and even so here in John 11, we, we see these believers who were the greater number of those who were present at the great miracle of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. But again, they believed because Christ was determined to save them. And he set the whole thing up for that purpose. You know, in verse 2, this sickness is not of the death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And then in verse 15, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. You see it again. Christ is determined to save them. They get saved. Oh, dear saints, do you see the Holy Spirit's point that salvation is by the supernatural power of God? It is by the revelation of Christ. And may we testify as the woman at the well or the blind man that was healed or as Nathaniel or Thomas that Jesus Christ sought us. We were not seeking him. He sought us. This gives us great hope that anyone can be saved. I, I, just yesterday in God's providence, I had an elderly man. He told me, he said, he said, look. He, he seemed so genuine, too, when he said this to me, and so humble. He said, look, I'm 77 years old. My life is over, and, and God can't save me. He said those words. God can't save me. It's too late. Most people would have said what to that? Most people would have said, no, no. All you got to do is believe. Come on, you can still be saved. All you got to do is believe. That's all. Just believe. What sad advice. What sad advice that is. The man has no chance of believing based on his own power. But I rejoicingly told him, Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, and the Lord Jesus raised himself from the dead. And dear sir, if he can do that, then he can certainly raise you from the dead, and he can certainly save you. I went on to tell him that, that I'm living proof of this, that if God can save me, a dead sinner and the worst guy in the world, then I am sure that he can save you. We talked for a little while longer and he thanked me and took a Bible and a gospel track. And I, I prayed afterwards and said, Lord, wow, it'd be amazing to see that guy in heaven. 
to see him get converted. You don't know. Those conversations happen. And my dad has real testimonies of people who come back to him 10, 20 years later and have told him after those short conversations that they were converted. And now they're trusting Christ and believing in him. And how many of those people will be in heaven that we never met again? I don't know. For some reason, I don't want to get weird about it, but I thought about that one. But after that conversation, I thought, man, that guy could get saved. Christ can save him. Christ is able. He raises people from the dead. That's what he does. And this shows us something, though, of the human problem in not believing. For as great as the miracle that it is that a man is to be saved, it is madness that men reject the gospel, which brings us to our second heading that will be much shorter than our first, the madness of unbelief in verse 46, or the responsibility of men who remain in their sin. But some of them went their ways in verse 46 to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Think with me of the insanity. These people just saw Jesus Christ call a dead man out of a grave, and now their only concern was to go to Christ's enemies. Not to report the good news, but to accuse Christ by knowing that upon receiving their report of Lazarus' resurrection, the Pharisees would be that much more angered and motivated to capture Christ and try to put an end to him. It shows us something of the human problem, that men are inexcusable because the only reason that they can't believe, follow me, the only reason that, that we can't believe is because we won't believe or we refuse to believe. God has plainly made himself known in creation and in the conscience. And Jesus Christ was the master of illustration. In his parables, the Lord spoke in the common man's language, where he used words and concepts that the simplest man can understand while dumbfounding the doctors and lawyers. He used illustrations about farming and marriage and family life and money and friendships, and nobody pried on the conscience more than Jesus Christ. The Lord was the one who told us that God can read our thoughts and judge us accordingly. In Matthew 5, he reached into the hearts and the minds and the psyches of men and was able to address them. He read people's thoughts. And what greater illustrations can there be than his miracles? The, the, the incredible nature of his miracles proved every word that he said was true. And yet, many still did not believe. Many believe, like the rich man in hell argued, look there in Luke chapter 16 as we bring it to a close. Look there in Luke chapter 16. There you find the rich man in hell, and he's actually arguing with Abraham. The poor beggar, who coincidentally his name was Lazarus, died and went to heaven, was in Abraham's bosom. And you find this conversation between Abraham and this, and this man in, in hell. And if you look there in Luke 16, the rich man asked Abraham if he could go back and warn his brothers about hell so that they would not end up there. And then in verse 29, we find Abraham's response. Look there in verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, 
If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. People say, show me a sign. God, show me a sign. Doesn't work that way. This prophecy was fulfilled of them not believing, even though one rose from the dead. This prophecy was fulfilled when that group of men saw Christ raise Lazarus from the dead, and they did not believe. And it is the same today, that none of us would believe, not because there isn't enough evidence, but because we would be too wrapped up in our lives and with our thoughts about God, and we just don't have a place for God. It is total madness that every one of us would exchange the temporal for the eternal. Or we would rather have our minutes of pleasure on earth and we be our own God rather than to have eternal happiness with God forever and Christ be our Lord. And men are without excuse. The problem is not ignorance or a lack of knowledge, but the problem is rebellion. It's rebellion. Creation and conscience are screaming at us. And for those who have the word of God, it plainly and without a doubt tells us of, the great, of this great salvation. And as the writer of Hebrews wrote, how shall they escape if they neglect so great a salvation? May we see the glory of God today in him saving poor and rebellious sinners by supernaturally revealing Christ to us. And let us see that God can save whoever he wills. And for that, from our perspective, who is that? Anyone, everyone, right? Therefore, we call all men to Christ, even as that man, that elderly man yesterday, I pray, came or comes to Christ. But at the same time, let us remember, people are not poor little victims, but monsters of iniquity who deliberately and intentionally rebel against the God who they know is there. Everyone is responsible because our conscience is telling us that there is a day of judgment. And this is proven by the fact that every person alive, if they're not born again, are caught in the trap of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you wanted to look there. Oh, what a revealing text Romans 2, 1 is. In chapter 1, he goes through all of the immoral sins. And he gives that long list at the end of chapter 1. And by the end of the chapter 1, you find yourself going, I'm glad I'm not like those people doing all those things that the apostle just mentioned. He's actually setting you up because in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Thou Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for, that, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same thing. Everyone is judging others in some way or another because our conscience speaks to us about God's standard. The law is written on everyone's mind. And this is why I say that self-righteousness is such a deadly sin. Such a deadly sin that we boost ourselves up and we look down upon others. And such would be all of us except Jesus Christ found us. 
or he came to us by his grace and made himself known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we fell down and we worshiped him, Jesus Christ, the sovereign and gracious God. As we consider those who believe and those who do not believe, let us cast ourselves upon Christ. Let us cast ourselves upon him, realizing oh, the sobering reality that in Matthew 7, when Jesus talks about the many and the few at the end of that chapter, he's not talking about the many and the few of, that, that are members of the whole entire human race. He's talking about the many and the few of those who call him Lord, Lord. Do you get that? And the many that call him Lord, I fear and many others fear, will end up in the category of those who believe only superficially. We need to cast ourselves upon Christ today, cast ourselves upon him, on his saving power and his saving work that, oh, Lord Jesus, you must reveal yourself to your people. You must reveal yourself to us and praise the Lord that he has revealed himself to a people. But it is a sobering reality in John's gospel. You can't avoid it. It's laced through the whole gospel. I hope I prove that to you today. That Christ seeks his own. And that there are many who profess that will be proven as false. And it leaves us at the mercy of God. It leaves us crying out as the publican in the temple saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Does it not? What can you do but cry to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? And he hears that prayer. He hears that prayer of the sinner crying out to him. And saying, Lord, Jesus, I see that you must seek me. I see that there's nothing I can do. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Praise his name. He saves those by his grace. We see that it is him that saves. It's him that comes to us and that is purely by his sovereign or free grace. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you for your kindness in revealing these things in your word, these sub-themes that are woven through John's gospel of seeing, Lord Jesus, how you went after the blind man in, in John 9. You went after the, the lame man in John chapter 5. You went after the woman at the well, O oh Lord. You sought them out. And oh, Lord. We praise your holy name that you sought us out with grace and mercy, Lord. It may have appeared to us that we were seeking you, but when we are awakened to the reality, we saw, Lord, it was you seeking us. It wasn't the other way around. We praise your name, O oh Lord, please, that these things would be a living reality in our hearts, that we would see that, Lord Jesus, you are sovereign over salvation. And certainly that humbles us. And causes us to arrive at your feet, Lord, and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. May this be the cry of each today, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Amen.